not to not to do things for the younger generation, but to be enablers and supporters. Mm-hmm. You know, really be you be wind that can lift them up in the the years to come, which are going to be yeah. such difficult decades. This is a podcast called Walk, Talk, Listen. An attempt to connect people and make this world a bit better by sharing opinions and experiences based on the belief that everyone's perspective is true, albeit partial. My name is Maurice Blum, and I would like to welcome you to yet another episode of Walk, Talk, Listen. Good day, everybody. This is another episode of the podcast Walk, Talk, Listen. And as always, I'm delighted with today's guest who will introduce himself. Tim, please go ahead. Well, thank you so much, Maurice. It's such a pleasure for me to spend this time with you and your listeners today. I am a relentlessly curious person. I think that's probably my defining characteristic. It's led me to a, a, a strange sort of zigzag life. I've, I've, traveled the world as a as a young man in my 20s i spent two years on the road in mm-hmm. in asia uh, my career after that as an international um, development and environment communication specialist has taken me to more than 40 different countries as well wow. working with people in all kinds of different contexts literally everywhere from alaska to zimbabwe mm-hmm. along the way um, as a as a journalist i've interviewed people as diverse as Tibetan monks describing their experience mm. being tortured in Chinese prisons to senior economists at the IMF, the International uh, uh, Monetary uh, Organization that guides the world's economies and helps bail people out in their, their crises. So I have this lovely map of the world. And I think one of the things that drives me in my life is filling that map in, not just what are the places, but how do those places operate? What are their what are their ways of being and how do very different people come at life given the fantastic multitude of the possible human experiences um, along the way i've written 10 books i've 10 maybe came they hear 10 it books correctly yeah, wow. that's right yeah i've written 10 books and as a publisher over the last mm-hmm. decade i've been able to publish a hundred more and my publishing company is called changemakers books mm-hmm. and it is a a house dedicated to books about transformation, both personal, mm-hmm. social, environmental, global. And r- really for me, from my life of curious wanderings, I've seen that transformation is the key. It's something that really drives me. If you like, you could say that my life question is what makes transformation possible? And my publishing company has basically been kind of like uh, putting a bird feeder in your backyard. If you really Mm -hmm. love birds, you put a bird feeder up, it attracts the birds to them. Mm -hmm. So I've I've done that. And that has attracted to me all kinds of amazing people working on one aspect of of transformation. And it's just enriched my life tremendously. And and as a result, um, the sort of zigzaggy paths that I've taken from, Mm -hmm. you know, growing up in a very average middle-class family in Canada uh, I feel so fortunate that I've been um, around the world and have 
met many interesting people along along the way. Mm-hmm. And and uh, Tim uh, was you know writing books something that happened within your family uh, already, or are you the first author? Kind of the first author, I, sh- I should say. My mm. uh, my my grandfather wrote children's books for my father. Okay. Cool. He didn't publish them, but he wrote uh-huh. and illustrated children's books for him. And it's mm-hmm. not surprising because um, he was a very literate man who spoke seven languages and loved uh, theater. He worked um, worked in many theaters as he grew up, although his career was selling uh, barbershop equipment. But he inspired this love of language in my grandfather, who became a journalist. Mm-hmm. And then my father became a journalist. And I really started off my career writing as a journalist as well. But I was always interested not in the day-to-day things, but in the, the bigger why questions of, of life. So I think I come by that part of, of desire to explore what I'm discovering, what I'm learning through language, through a long line of uh, mm-hmm. of my own family. Okay, and and did you did you study, you know, for writing? What, what was what was your path after high school? Well, I um, I took an interesting path from high school. I decided mm-hmm. to take a gap year between high school and college, which many okay. people do. But I wanted to spend that uh, learning about life outside of a middle-class urban Canadian home. So I worked in the wilderness. I worked most of my time in oil rig camps in Canada's far north as a roughneck um, in very dangerous jobs with men who were sometimes twice the size (laughs) that I was, um, who'd lived very rough uh, lives and careers. I learned to hide books to not let anybody see. I was reading a book. I'd be more likely to take a book and hide it inside a Playboy magazine. (laughs) you wouldn't want people to see we're reading that could really um alienate folks but it also taught me to respect people who grew up living in different and much harsher conditions and and realizing the people who my life depended on uh didn't care what i learned or what i knew or what kind of a smarty pants i was they just wanted to know if i could keep them safe on the job too Mm -hmm. and that was a uh, that matured me a lot before i Mm -hmm. went to university yeah. I also, in my late teens, became um, very religious. I kind of discovered God and got it into my head that everybody else should discover the kind of God I'd discovered and was quite zealous and uh, evangelical in my, my late teens and early 20s, much to the annoyance of my father. Uh, and yet I decided in university to study philosophy. So I got a mm-hmm. four-year um, degree program in philosophy, which taught me how to think critically Mm-hmm. And uh, the writers I was exposed to there also helped me question the things that I had taken as literally on faith. This is the way the world is. It helped me really um, question, think, and become curious about the world outside what I thought I knew. Travel, mm-hmm. of course, greatly broadened my horizons. I was, I went to Europe and spent seven months kicking around Europe as mm-hmm. in uh, in the middle of my education, and learned that there was not one Christianity the way there were dozens, maybe hundreds of very different Christianities and some of the most violent conflicts that I ran into every place from uh, Northern Ireland to um, Israel um, were fights between different brands of Christianity, each convinced that the other was the worst of all possible heresies. So by the time I graduated, I'd 
a lot of the hard edges of my faith got knocked off me, but I was still left with a curiosity and a sense that there was a bigger meaning purpose in the world, which drove me to continue my travels and led me ultimately to spending two years in Asia and doing weird things like spending time at uh, ashrams of some of the Hindu godmen who everybody believes are God incarnate, God walking amongst us. And then Buddhist monasteries, which are very different, have a much more of an ascetic getting rid of yourself, getting rid of your uh, illusions uh, way of life. And out of that time traveling, I sort of weakened the holds of my the Western mind frame that I had grown up with. Mm-hmm. And that left me as, a, I think, a very flexible and open thinker. Mm-hmm. And, and a question about, you know, your fascination or your interest in, in faith and, and religion. Um, did that have to do you know, because you you said you know uh, that your father was annoyed that you got so um, into it? Uh, do do you think it's because you felt something was lacking, you know, in your in your upbringing that you were searching for that? What was the reason that you were started to be curious and so ultimately fanatic uh, around that? Well, you know, the impetus behind my mm-hmm. late teen conversion was actually a genuine mystical experience i i was spending that that time uh, out of school mm-hmm. um and walking alone under the, the 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 stars of northern canada at night i really felt this powerful connection to something greater than my than myself and really christianity was all i'd ever been exposed to it was kind of the only pot i had to put this mystical experience into but then once i did that you know other people who were devout christians around me started telling me well all of this is involved and this is how you have to read the bible and i just sort of took it as face value because i just didn't didn't know any different uh and as my curiosity continued i just began to see that that pot was not big enough and Mm. kept Searching for bigger and bigger pots to put yeah, all yeah. of my experiences in. But I, I was also really, really fortunate uh, uh, with many of the people who were my early Christian teachers who were themselves not dogmatic. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I do recall some friends when I told them I had decided to study philosophy, they were like, oh, but, you, you know, that's a bad thing because it will lead you to question your faith. Mm-hmm. And I remember saying back to them, oh, I don't want the kind of faith that can't be questioned. Mm-hmm. I mean, to, to me, Christianity is not a crutch. It's a walking stick. I want to use it to mm-hmm. better explore and discover what's what's real in the world. And um, indeed, eventually that led me to part ways with Christianity, but not mm-hmm. without keeping an awful lot of respect for those who follow that particular path and mm-hmm. with a lot of the wisdom that it, that it contains. There were just things that kept me climbing and questing away from that particular faith, mm-hmm. although I, I don't consider myself uh, an adherent to any particular path other than mm-hmm. that of the way of curiosity and keeping yeah. on walking. Come back to the walking uh, later in our conversation. And another word uh, that I heard you mention, and it seems to be very important. No, I, I'm pretty sure it's important because it comes back all the time on, on your websites and, and, and blogs as well, is transformation. And so can you maybe explain, you know, why you're fascinated with transformation and why you think that's important? 
and and what do you do with that concept right well you know transformation if you like seems to be the one constant in life you know things change i really resonated when i came into buddhist company with the notion of impermanence that nothing is permanent or fixed everything changes all things evolve they die they are reborn in different in different forms uh, that that is really the essence of of life and so this process of transformation is really understanding the the process of life uh, when i studied science i, I found that's evolution was fascinating uh, evolution took dinosaurs and and over millions of years turned them into birds right <laughs> uh you know that that long pathway is an amazing mm -hmm. one that yeah. these creatures learned how to fly i think what makes human beings particularly fascinating is because our minds have evolved to um to pick up social cues and our behavior is so flexible that we can actually change in a single lifetime we are capable of doing what dinosaurs is go from ground swamp crawling reptiles to flying beings we do that through the power of our minds. We literally have learned to fly in less than a hundred years. Mm. Now, of course, that's also created massive challenges for the whole planet. Yes, we're capable of amazing change, amazing transformation, but sometimes we don't know the consequences of that transformation. Mm -hmm. So now, especially with climate change and, and, and system biological systems collapse at our doorstep, we have to learn how to fly quite purposefully again very very quickly compared to previous generations so our challenges will only be met when we become truly adept at purposeful transformation so i, I that mm -hmm. for me is why transformation remains a key word not just one of curiosity but really one of necessity how can we make ourselves so capable of change that we can give up in our lifetime our massive dependence on fossil fuels So how we will do that? That's one of the things I ask my authors. I'm constantly uh -huh. searching yeah. for good authors with keys to the puzzle because nobody has mm -hmm. all the keys to the puzzle. Um, I've been been fortunate, uh, it, both in my work with large organizations like the mm -hmm. World Wildlife Fund and uh, the, the UN organization, the Green Climate Fund, to learn from people who know an incredible amount of technologies that are out there that actually really make it make it possible uh, there are things we can do but more important there's lots of things we can simply not do uh, one of my authors wrote a book called what if the climate crisis or what if solving the climate crisis is simple you know what a breathtaking idea to begin with and he says basically we just have to stop burning fossil fuels and we have to do it very very quickly it doesn't mean it's easy, but it's simple if we just keep that premise in mind. So sometimes an idea that reframes how we look at problems can unleash tremendous energy to helping us transform. As a publisher, you, you publish a lot of books that they are called change maker books but you're also doing other things right so 
just yes. I would like to go quickly to the change makers books. Let us let us describe the whole uh publisher and, and what, what you're trying to do because that's also unique. Your model is also unique. So so uh I would like to to uh, yeah to make that uh, clear to the listeners as well because I, I yeah I really like what you've tried to do. No, what sure, are you what you're so, actually uh, doing, not try I, to do. Yeah. I'll, I'll give you the origin story, if you like, about okay. how Changemakers yeah. Books got started. We are one of 24 imprints within mm-hmm. the larger publishing house called John Hunt Publishing. And my imprint was one of the first that John Hunt Publishing began with. And this is because I became very good friends with John Hunt, who founded my publishing company. He published some of my books before he founded this company. And he had this brilliant idea. Uh, about 15 years ago, to bring publishing into the 20th century by fully automating some of the simp systems, simplifying it, and making the break-even point for publishing books much different than it was in the industry at that time. At that time, the break-even books point for publishing books was around 10,000 copies. That means any publisher who, whose books sold fewer than 10,000 copies was losing money year on year. And that meant that it was very hard for first-time authors to get published because, well, there's a catch-22. Publishing houses only want to publish authors who've shown they've got a good track record. But how do you get a good track record until you can get well-published? It was very hard. I faced that frustration as a writer myself. So John's system took the break-even point down to under a 1,000 copies of a book. And the purpose was to allow first-time authors to get in, get started in the business, and get some experience as authors, get published well. And he talked through with me over the course of about two weeks, all the details, and we discussed all the ideas of this during a trek we took together, climbing through one of the the most beautiful parts of the Himalayan mountains, Mustang in Nepal, which is a high alpine, high altitude desert. It's beautiful, stark country. We had about eight to 10 hours of walking per day. And we walked our way through this whole process that he had in mind. And near the end, he said, why don't you take on an imprint for yourself? Mm-hmm. He wanted me to do his uh, Eastern spirituality imprint because of course of my, my Buddhism practice and record. Yeah. But I immediately said, no, I don't want to do that. I moved on from that. And he said, well, what would you like your imprint to be? And honestly, without a moment's thought, Maurice, I said, well, I'd like it to be an imprint dedicated to transformation. And he said, and what would you call it? And I said, change makers books. And I'd honestly never thought about being a publisher, even when yeah. we were talking about all of this until John made me the offer. And then it was just boom, boom. It yeah. was right there. Uh, like something that had been waiting for me that I just hadn't, hadn't discovered. Yeah. And so change makers books was, was born then in that, mm-hmm. in that walk, which I believe was 2009. The other thing that was part of this company is John himself had been an author, and he really wanted to make the people who worked inside the company, people who were themselves authors so that they could relate to and connect to authors and build a company for them, not a company that was just using authors to make a a profit. So we tried to make things very author-friendly. And for me, what that meant was having a personal connection with the authors that I published. Mm -hmm. And especially during the pandemic, when so many people were feeling so isolated, I began mm-hmm. taking groups of authors and working with them on Zoom calls 
literally as teens. I, I put out a series of books during the pandemic called Resilience, which was all which which was for, for authors to write books about things like coping with anxiety, like mm. connecting with nature in times of great of great stress, using story to help you feel whole and connected to others. These things were really life-saving skills for people during the pandemic. Mm -hmm. But we worked together as a team. People read each other's drafts. They encouraged each other. They they helped in various ways. And we put all these books out in six weeks. They're short 20,000-word books, but they were great. And this feeling of teamwork, like we were all on a rowing team mm -hmm. together, was really for me, it was inspirational. For the authors, it was inspirational. So I kept that up. Now I have regular Zoom calls with my authors to give them a sense that they are not alone. So they can review each other's books. They can read each other's manuscripts. One author who's a skilled graphic designer offered to help design the covers of more than a dozen other authors in wow. a second series that I covered, covered called Resetting Our Future. And there's really nothing more lonely than writing a book. So doing it together with others who are also in that same boat, rowing together, uh, has been a very meaningful experience for, men of the, for many of them, and certainly for me. And mm -hmm. um, Maurice, your listeners don't know this, but I invited you to be in on one of my author calls uh, mm -hmm. just, uh, just, just recently to see what that was, was like, and also to participate in it and give some feedback as a, uh, a podcaster. So thanks so much for being in that call. Uh, but also thanks for seeing what it was like. I think you're one of the few people who've witnessed collaborative authors live on Zoom. No, and it, it was it was great. And and the, the you know what I got out of it. I mean, many things, but uh, I I felt like oh I you know I'm uh, witnessing a, a community um, that they've built, which is really uh, an awesome, uh, thing. And especially as you said, I think as an author, it can be lonely. Um, and I think there is also, yeah, a lot to say in, in terms of that you have a community that you can go to that know what you're going through. Um, and then on top of that, at least if I look at the numbers that are also shared on the website, you know, this particular, publishing uh endeavor is, is pretty successful so that is uh that is actually uh, very extraordinary because of of the you know the times that we are in i i i don't know how that if that's true or not but you know are are people uh, reading less or has that increased again the last two years how, how is that um well, so how is it to survive Publishers depend collectively on making more good calls than bad calls. Yeah. And indeed, the trend has been going down over the last um, 25 years or so yeah. for obvious reasons. You know, when the internet kicked in, you can not only find lots of things that you can read mm -hmm. for free, but also social media, things like Facebook and, and Instagram and TikTok are endlessly distracting and, and amusing and take away from the time that one used to spend reading a, a, a novel to, to pass your leisure hours. It's easy to get all that soaked up. So yes, reading trends have gone down. Interestingly enough, not surprising though, during the pandemic, there was weak, what we called a, a reading bump. Mm -hmm. More people were reading because they simply had so much so much time. So publishers all across the board did better during the pandemic. But now guess what? Mm. Now that the pandemic is for many of us in our rear view mirror, there's a reading slump following mm. that reading bump. And 
a lot of publishers are are struggling. Indeed, John Hunt Publishing is quite fortunate as a mid-sized company because we made so many adjustments mm-hmm. when John set this up to make our systems lean and and not have a lot of overhead. Yeah, the company managed to not only be profitable through the pandemic, but still not be in the in crisis right now. And anybody who's not in crisis is a successful publisher. <laughs> At this particular time, so many smaller publishers in particular have just been absorbed by the larger houses because it's hard. But yeah, uh, to me, reading books, the the process of having uh, a long, thoughtful argument, a series of ideas Mm -hmm. or a fantastic story, that's irreplaceable. And um, I'm, you know, I'm going to be out there. They're publishing and, and helping people find great books to read. Uh, as as long as people have eyes to read. I have, I have two um, questions still about the publishing side and about the community that you've developed and, and are maintaining. And, and one is... Um, are you able to attract also younger authors or are you leaning towards the more <laughs> senior ones? Um, I'm, I'm laughing because I myself also were part of that particular group. And the second question that I have for, for you, uh, Tim, is, is um, have you, because you use Zoom to, you know, uh, to build uh, and to strengthen, to help each other. Um, but I have uh, understood that, you know, uh, the reading bump uh, was also due to you know development within TikTok, where especially young uh, kids, well, relatively young people, are um, advertising, talking about books that they're reading, and that that really helps it. Um, so, two yeah, two questions yes. for you. Yeah. Uh, uh, first of all, yes, when young people are reading, when they can share it on social media, that is a great way of spreading the word so yes that is happening and that's and that's good still the overall trend is going down but i have been really heartened by some of the young authors who've come come my way now i would say more of our authors are 40 plus but i have had three just great uh authors that i would call millennials or even uh, even younger than than, than that in the last two years. Two, uh, a couple of years ago, we're actually mm-hmm. a, a young married couple. He wrote a really stunning book called Everything You Never Learned About Sex, which mm-hmm. was as a young man writing about the challenges and problems that young men face that he saw as really destroying their ability to have healthy, fulfilling sexual lives. And he really took aim at pornography, which is so normalized in our culture. But he really talked about the the ways that pornography is killing men's natural sex sex drives and sex responses to, to women. Brilliant, brilliant book. And then his wife, who's a fantastic uh, entrepreneurial woman, and in her mid-20s, she had a, a, a multi-million dollar company based on selling flavored dessert hummuses. <laughs> Not something I'd ever even heard of before. But she wrote this great book called How to Lead a Badass Business from the Heart. <laughs> and it was, you yeah. know, her sharing her own wisdom as a young woman getting out there and making a successful business thrive. 
And then more recently, right in production right now, we've got a lovely book that's being written uh, by a former fashion model who now has mm -hmm. her own fashion line. And um, it is all about sustainable fashion. Mm -hmm. And uh, the, the problems that the fashion industry has created from an environmental perspective and also what we can do in terms of making sustainable choices for the clothes we, we wear. Brilliant. And mm -hmm. uh, uh, so her book is in production, so I expect it out next year. Okay, nice. And and so to, I mean, just to, to, to be really clear, so the question that they asked was, was really referring to uh, your Changemaker book series, but uh you know the the publisher as a whole or john hunt as a whole of course has all kinds of books that that uh, the publisher is, is publishing right so i'm i assume That's right. that there you will have more millennial authors in, in those uh sub, on those subjects that's true. And, and many of the other imprints are devoted imprints, to yeah. alternative spiritualities, mm -hmm. uh, which I think attracts a lot of a lot of people. There's a, a whole yeah. imprint which focus on, focuses on books connected to paganism. And there's an awful mm -hmm. lot of young people who find um, ancient Celtic uh, spirituality or, or, or Wiccan and the, the whole panoply of um, alternative religious wisdom that's out there for us. Goddess, goddess spirituality. Also, all of these things, these are all parts of John Hunt publishing that I think do draw young people quite well, as well as fiction books. You know, books for young, we have young adult fiction line as as well. So, um, yeah, my audience might tend to skew older than uh, than most because of the focus yeah. on transformation. Okay. Um, I would like to go to your books, actually. Um, you you, you uh, shared, you've written uh, 10 books. I would I have a quick, quick questions about your last three. I will start with asking a question about um, your pro-truth movement book. That's your last one, mm -hmm. right? Uh, pretty, pretty much. There's, there's okay. a small one after, after okay. that. Um, yeah, tell us about it because I'm, I'm, you know, it was, it was, um, what you try to do is is create a movement that would have an influence on the 2020 uh, U.S. presidential election. So, you know, we are three years after. So, you know, did your book uh, do what you hoped it would do? Yeah. So here's the book. In short answer, yes. Okay. This this book was really a, a reaction um, by myself and my my co-author to the Trump presidency particularly the uh, the meme of post-truth that came out with that, where it didn't seem to matter that Trump lied about many things, lied frequently and obviously, and uh, that was being normalized. And both my co-author and I were like deeply wounded and angered by this. And um, so we pushed back with not post-truth, but pro-truth, really making the case that truth matters in a democracy and that there were things we could do to counter the post-truth tendency that our politics had taken. Even while many in the media were just saying, oh, this is the new reality, this is the way things are, 
we really wanted to make the case that that could not happen, would be bad for democracy, and that there are ways that individuals could protect themselves, strategies for recognizing lies and turning them around to strengthen your sense of what was real rather than the falsehoods being being promoted. Now, my co-author is actually the one behind the pro-truth movement, and he has on the website the pro-truth pledge, which are simple promises that anybody can go to the website and sign that the pledge that you will not pass things on social media that could be false, that you will correct errors where you find them, uh, and that you will take a sense of responsibility for your own political talk and the, let's call it the bubble that you live in. Can you cleanse your bubble of lies? That's what we we look at doing. Mm -hmm. So these are individual skills that we, we we offer that are not only for making your bubble better, but then it can be spread to to others through the ripple ripple effect. He's really the the master of this. This mm -hmm. is Gleb uh, Tsipersky. He's a doctor of um, uh, behavioral economics and cognitive neuroscience, mm -hmm. and he's done you know tests and and experiments and an awful lot of research on our cognitive biases, the way our minds can trick us, and what it takes to help us find our way back to truth. Okay. Um, no, I, I think it's fascinating. And, you, you know, basically you have three big um, tips, you know, for the for the reader, uh, how, how uh, he or she can, can work on that. So, two quick last questions about that uh, book, Tim, is, you know, one, is it also relevant for a non-US uh, audience, you think? Um, because you're traveling yeah, a lot absolutely. around, so you're seeing what's happening around the world. And then the second question is, um, you know, elections are coming again in this country within two years. Um, I find it always fascinating that one is finished and then they start talking about the next one already. Um, yeah, um, so we, I, I think we can have several podcasts about that particular topic but um will it still be relevant this book for the next election so the answer to both questions is yes mm -hmm. um it was now i'm trying to remember what the first one was so yes it'll be relevant for both elections and it's also not simply america focused we for example draw okay. a lot of examples from the um the the, the brexit referendum and mm -hmm. the lies that were promulgated, you, mm -hmm. you know, like that the British healthcare system would be saving 350 million pounds a week, mm -hmm. just plain a lie. And yet the fact forces in the pro-Brexit campaign had a bus which went around London with that that written on and they didn't take it down even after it was debunked by the by the media. I think Great Britain right now is suffering the, the costs of mm -hmm. believing a, a lie like that. And we talk about other contexts as, as well that are outside of America. Is it relevant? Indeed, uh, the one thing that I I sort of look at with chagrin, since this book was written in 2020, it's got none of what has become known as the big lie that Trump promulgated that he, uh, through election fraud, lost the election, as opposed to he simply lost the election and then made up fraudulent stories. And those fraudulent stories continue to be believed by, mm -hmm. by many people. So I wish we could have included that in this book. But the principles are still relevant, and many of them are also still um, quite alive in our 
Mm-hmm. Our, our social consciousness. So we talked, for example, about Trump's repeated lie that Hillary Clinton was a crook. And we talked, well, how could, you know, how could one take that information? How, how could one take a lie like that and better deal with it? Mm-hmm. So the techniques that are there, the strategies that are there, and indeed the whole premise of the pro-truth pledge, they're still there. They will be lasting through 2024, and I will be back on that particular horse when the next election comes around. Uh, One of the more more valuable and constructive things that the pro-truth pledge does is it encourages public office holders to sign the pledge, taking a vow, in other words, that they will themselves not spread falsehoods. And we're very fortunate to have had several sitting members of Congress take the pro-truth pledge uh, including one um, uh, person who ran for governor this year, and hopefully he will be running again. That means they vow not to use the the destructive tactics of spreading lies about their opponents in their campaign. It's a big, it's a big step. We believe we can make more inroads inroads with that in twenty twenty four. I yeah, I really encourage uh, our listeners to to check out uh, you know your particular book and. And the pledge and the website, etc. And another book that you wrote, I think the title was virtual. But it is the topic is about virtual speaking. I have one question about that. How is virtual yes. speaking different from in person speaking? Well, you and I are doing virtual speaking right mm-hmm. now, and there are some things that people need to attend to. I'm sure you've seen this as a pod, uh, podcaster yourself. How many of your guests aren't properly framed, aren't properly lit, aren't properly mic'd? If those things are not good, then the person that you're that you're speaking with doesn't come across as their best self, and our attention is so fragmented to begin with that in the virtual reality, it's very easy to ignore the person on the screen and what they're saying. You, I'm sure, like me and like all of your listeners, have probably been on various webinars where you just start doing your emails, where you start scrolling through your phone because it's just boring. You can't stand paying attention to what's being said on the screen. It's too dull. We are not experts at gaining and keeping the attention of our audiences. So all of these things are in are in this book. Great. And and was that was that one of the books that you? Uh, published, you know, during uh, COVID? Exactly. It's yeah, part yeah. of the Resilience series. Okay. So it's Resilience, uh, virtually speaking, communicating at a distance. And really, right. for any of your listeners who use um, virtual communications, which mm-hmm. is now just part of our lives, for, um, you know, not just day-to-day communications, but for meetings, if they're doing interviews, if they're doing presentations, even job interviews and things like that, it's a great resource because it helps correct the sorts of mistakes we just don't think about, but can actually seriously detract from our ability to be heard when we communicate online. Okay. Um, Last question is about your communication handbook. You know, yesterday, actually, I I attended, you know, your session with... uh, your authors, and they had to do a 30-second uh, elevator pitch about their books. So if I ask you to do the 30-second elevator pitch about your communication handbook, what, how would it go? All right, here it goes. You're gonna I'm time sorry me. to put you on the spot. <laughs> <in>. <laughs> All right. So the book is the Master, Communications, the Master Communicator's Handbook. And its premise is that communication 
can create transformation. And if you have a mission to make the world a better place, to create positive change, you can't do it alone. You need others to hear you. And this book gives you the tools that you need to make that possible. That's it. Great. Thank you. I didn't I didn't time it, but I think you were pretty close. Um, hey, Tim, you, you like walking. You walk a lot. I, I think you just came back from a, a, a traveling tour, kind of, after uh, mm-hmm. a during or after COVID, uh, back in the U.S. now. Um, I, around 11 years ago or 12 years ago, I started to do a 100-mile walk where I try to raise money and awareness around, you know, ending hunger, uh, poverty, and injustice. Uh, it means that I walk 15 to 20 miles a day. And, you know, uh, um, during COVID, uh, I was not able to be joined by by a person to walk with me. So then I started uh, this po- podcast. And it has gone on of hand. I mean, we're more than uh, 100 episodes <laughs> since then. Um but but uh, like what you alluded to, you know, when you're walking alone or with others, you you think about life, and um, so I've very often uh, talks about spirituality, religion, and one of the topics that uh, continues to come back is about youth and spirituality and um, religion. So my question to you is, what do you see happening with the younger population in your your community around this uh, topic? Can you share some of your observations? What you how you, yes. you know if you compare it to be your own, with your own generation? Yes, I have a um, a small sample size for making any generalizations. The the number of younger people I actually know well enough that I've had talks with their spiritual about their spirituality or about their lives mm-hmm. is fairly small i i can include in them my my own son mm-hmm. who's now 32 years old and uh he would not describe himself as a spiritual or a, certainly not a religious person and i happily embraced that about him because what he is is somebody who's very um, connected and engaged in his own life. He's a, a professional improvisational actor. He's also a director and a teacher. And what really turns him on in life is showing people the skills of improv that can unleash their natural creativity. And he's really good, really good at that. He also is great at making magic on stage out of nothing. Mm. Phenomenal skill sets. So I think the way that he engages in his life, the way he sees it as an adventure, is he wouldn't call that a spiritual path, but to me, it's a path of uh, of really being alive. And I think maybe if if one framed it in that way, you would see in a good number of the younger generations, this necessity to be alive is really there. They're not satisfied to get on a career path and buy into the package of you know uh, you know the the home, the double income, the raising the kids in the suburbs, the the retirement and, and golf courses uh, template that is kind of the goal for for many and say the boomer generations. And I like that insistence that life be more meaningful and more on their more on their terms. I 
uh, I'm glad of of that. I think there are also, first of all, the reality of climate change and the reality that 20, 30 years from now, things won't be like they are today. That's a hard, hard burden for youth to bear. Uh, It could easily make people depressed, bitter, uh, and angry. And although you do see that, I'm amazed at the number of people who instead are ready to embrace a life of activism and connection and caring about the planet. When I was in in Paris last year on Earth Day, I stumbled into a wonderful uh, protest by high school students who, you know, had you know, left school for the day and they had all sorts of signs about protecting the planet and the change that we, that we need to make. Um, and they were, they had their faces painted and some of them had lively costumes and they were there and they were protesting and they were chanting, but they had a joyful, hopeful energy mm-hmm. uh, about them, about them too, which I thought, God, that is so beautiful. They feel connected to each other. This is an expression of their care, not just of their anger. and. It made me happy. Hmm. I think boomer generations, those of us who have taken so much, who have been so fortunate to live in, in generations that thrived due to fossil fuels, making our lives so easy, providing us with so many machines, so many opportunities hmm. to, 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 to travel. We have a moral obligation to find a way to give younger people their opportunities to make of the world what they can Uh, one of my newest authors has actually written a book which is all about boomers and climate change and it's time for us to pay attention to the legacy we are leaving now so i mean you know you're listing a a couple of uh, of things so a lot to worry about um is it the youth where you still see hope or are there additional uh, things going on where you still see hope. I I do see hope, and I don't think that it's befitting of my generation to look to the the younger generation mm-hmm. to carry our hope. I think it really is up to us mm-hmm. to give them a reason to hope, to show them our determination to leave the world better than we found it, our mm-hmm. determination to um, stand stand up, not in front of them. Uh, not behind them, but beside them. Uh, this uh, this author of the the the, the climate book, um, Lawrence McDonald, he introduced me to a great phrase, particularly applicable for for white men in diverse communities, mm-hmm. which is to um, stand up by standing back. To not assume that just because you're an old white guy used to your privilege, you then can stand in the front and tell everybody what they should do. Mm-hmm. But you can find ways to stand stand back make room for others create space needed um offer to provide resources support uh, platforms mm-hmm. like change makers book is a platform yeah uh not to not to do things for the younger generation but to be enablers and supporters mm-hmm. you know really be you be wind that can lift them up in the the years to come which are going to be yeah. such difficult decades I want to piggyback a bit in terms of, you know, the things that we need to do to ensure that um, uh, 
that we take better care of the planet and ourselves, humanity. Um, and I think uh, one of the uh, things that we have done uh, as human beings is develop the 17 sustainable development goals, you know, to, uh, they might not be perfect, but it's what we have and it, it gives some kind of framework. Now, um, the last two years, we didn't make any progress on that. Some things got even worse. And there is now a growing group of people around the world that is saying that, you know, one of the reasons that um, we are not making the progress that we need to, to have is because we did not pay attention to the skills, knowledge, and abilities that you need as an individual and as community to work on those goals. And then as a result, they came up with the inner development goals. There are five inner development goals. So I have two questions about the SDGs and the IDGs, about the sustainable development goals mm -hmm. and the inner development goals. The first question is, uh, Tim, what do you like my listeners or our listeners uh, to know about the sustainable development goals? That's one. And the second question is, what are your thoughts about the inner development goals? Thank you. Great questions. I'm very fortunate in my career as a communications expert to have worked with so many organizations that have taken on one or more of the sustainable development goals. And those that includes the World Bank, the Asia Development Bank, the Africa Development Bank, many um, NGOs like the World Wildlife uh, Fund. So all of these organizations are tackling pieces. And their work is, in some cases, truly extraordinary. It's almost impossible to keep up with the kinds of changes that are being developed on the front edge that are working towards meeting those goals. Where a lot of work needs to be done is figuring out how to connect these goals together so that people aren't working for them in isolation. When you work for them in isolation, you may be doing great progress on um, work, for example, ending poverty, but what might that actually be doing to creating um, sustainable food sources? Maybe your, your agricultural practices are feeding today, but the expense of, at the expense of tomorrow. So needing to find ways to weave those 17 goals together so that they are being achieved as part of a global transformational whole is a task mm. that no one has really been assigned to. And I've run across very few people who are even aware, not only of the problems that that can then create, but also the loss of synergies. Maybe people are doing amazing things in the, uh, the, the, the water goals that could well be applied to education goals. But there's nobody's in the same, the same room. So one person who I am hoping is going to be a future guest of yours, because she's also one of mine authors, has developed what she calls smart futures for uh, a flourishing world. Hmm. And her key is all about how do we start to see the sustainable development goals as clusters and then put the clusters together and create linkages and laboratories where hmm. what's explored in one set of goals can then be applied to other sets of goals and also so that they don't end up hurting each other at the same hmm. time. So this is to me is something I would love to see us find a focus on in the decades to come. Now, your second question was on the inner development goals. And boy, there's a lot of work to be to be done there. From where I stand as someone who's obsessed about transformation, 
I would say that the sort of meta sustainable development, inner sustainable development goal is becoming flexible people, becoming people who don't have a way of doing things and don't insist that others do it my way in order to make it the, the right way. We have with our challenges, we have to be so flexible that, that our lives in 20 or 30 years will look, look nothing like what our lives are today because they simply can't. We can't look at a future in which we are using fossil fuels and using the world's resources in 30 years the way we're using them today. It might be sustainable for a tiny number of very rich people. In other words, they might still be doing that, but at a greater and greater cost, not just to the rest of humanity, to the rest of the planet. So how can we make ourselves ready to embrace change? How can we learn to want less? How can we distinguish between what are our wants and what are our needs? You take a look at what's considered living a poor life in the United States today, and that would be living a very nice life by the standards of, say, the 1940s. And still is a life of luxury to compare to what it's like in many of the poorest parts of the world today. There's a great line from a TV show I'm, I'm watching right now where a... Uh, uh, indigenous Native American and a, a very rich English woman from over 100 years ago are about to embark on a journey by horse across the West. And she's brought all these trunks of her clothes with her. And and uh, he's, and they just have two horses. And he says, well, you've got to decide what you, uh, what you need. And she says, but I want to take everything. And he looks at her and says, the difference between what you need and what you want is what you can put on a horse. And I think the message for humanity is yeah. we've got to saddle up. Yeah, yeah. We're going to have to let go of a lot of baggage that there's no, no way that we can take with us and hope to get to a better future. <laughs> I liked it. Um... You know, talking about the inner development uh, goals, um, I always have to to think about uh, music somehow, because music is a very important part of my life, as the listeners know. Um, and I have always a question about music as well. So my question to you is, if I ask you to come up with a piece of music or a song that best embodies who Tim is and what, or you know, for a big part, what you are about, which piece of music or song would that be and why? Well, um, I knew that question was coming, so it gave me a good chance to think about it, Maurice. Thank you so much. Clearly, for a guy who's all about transformation, David Bowie's Changes is the song that uh, that, that came cool. to mind and really resonated. And uh, I actually have the lyrics right up here, so I'd love to read mm -hmm. just a few of the, the lines, if that's all right. Yes. I, I watched the ripples change their size but never leave the stream of warm impermanence. And so the days float through my eyes, but still the days seem the same. And these children that you spit on, as they try to change their worlds, are immune to your consultations. They're quite aware of what they're going through. Ch-ch-ch-ch-changes, turn and face the strange. Ch-ch-ch-changes, don't tell them to grow up and out of it. Ch -ch 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 changes. Where's your shame? You've left up up to you've left left us up to our necks in it. Time may change me, 
but I can't trace time. Man, that was written in 1971. Mm. But for boomers who were digging it back then, it's really relevant to us today in a way we might not have expected. Do you you still remember when you heard that song for the first time? I can't remember ever not knowing that song. (laughs) It's always been there. Yeah, yeah. Nice. And 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 just to remind it to all the listeners, you know, that song will be added to uh, the Spotify playlist called hashtag uh, walk, talk, listen, where all the songs are um, added, um, you know, that have been elected and selected by uh, my guests. Thank you so much for that. Um, you know, something that I started recently, well, relatively recently is uh, really connecting you you know, uh, with with my community that is expanding now all these guests that I, you know, I'm so privileged that I can talk with you and the others. Um, so I have a question for you, uh, Tim, from the previous guest, mm-hmm. and uh, I I hope you will be able to hear her. It's Puja. Question for the next person would be, what do you see as your life's purpose? And... Why? In uh, one sentence. Okay. You're making it tough. Did you answer it in one sentence? Yeah. Answer it in one sentence. I'm going to do that, but I also, I'm going to answer it more because it deserves more than one sentence. Yeah, yeah, sure. I believe it's up to each of us to create our own life's purpose. And for me and mine, it's been to be a facilitator of transformation. And if I can say a little more on that, one of the most amazing things that I've discovered in life is what happens when someone gets an idea and they're able to express it to others in a way that starts to create this this energy. It might be two people, it might be Simon and Garfunkel coming together and and writing songs, or it might be two scientists collaborating and creating a discovery that wins a Nobel Peace Prize. It might be a, a group deciding to overthrow a repressive regime. But when people come together around an idea, a hope, a vision, Big change can take place. So I love facilitating this. It's it's like being a cam- catalyst in a chemical reaction, or like being what it takes to have neutrons banging together in a way that starts a nuclear reaction that unleashes an incredible amount of energy. I find this every time I have a conversation with an author about writing a book, and you can see that book take hold of them and start to work its way out into a finished product in there in their lives. And indeed, somebody who's reading a book, that same process can happen. But that process just endlessly fascinates me. And I'm tremendously hopeful because the change that can be created out of that process of allowing transformation to take place, maybe simply by listening to a friend talk about their latest idea, uh, is fabulous. Just lights lights my world. Your question for the next guest. Okay. 
My question comes from a, a dear friend of mine who I actually co-wrote a book with, who used to say this casually in conversation, and I realized, wow, that is a great way of thinking about your life. Mm. He used to talk about his life's question. So I would say for your next guest, what is your life's question? Wow. A short question, but uh, that's a lot to think about. Uh, great. Thank you, uh, Tim. Hey, um, you know, Steve Hartman of, of CBS, uh, I don't know if this is on the television or it's a series of a couple of videos, but um, he started something that he called The Gift. Um, you know, it's about one simple act of kindness and that can create a ripple effect. What are your thoughts about, you know, a simple act of kindness? I really get that idea about kindness. And um, it comes to me around a, a question that people often do ask, especially in their later parts of their life, which is, will I be remembered? What's my legacy? What have I left behind? And some people think of it as their children. Some people think of it as, you know, um, a, a deed that they did, you know, whether you're Martin Luther King's, uh, who who gave the civil rights movement this this transformational voice, or a, a, a war hero. There's so many individuals who really leave a mark. We think, well, we'll remember, we'll remember them. So uh, people get obsessed, kind of, about their their legacy. And indeed, the truth is. Your children may die out. I, I remember my grandparents, but I don't really know anything further back than than that. They're just they're just names that don't have much relevance to me mm -hmm. for the most for the most part. And and similarly, almost any legacy is going to crumble over time. Maybe a very few will be remembered, but even those those civilizations or ours will eventually crumble and disintegrate. So none of that lasts. But an act of kindness can not just change someone's attitude for a day, it can change their life. It can inspire them to turn around and do an act of kindness for, mm -hmm. for others. So active kindnesses create a ripple effect that create change that is no longer attached to your name. You mm -hmm. can't put a plaque on it, and yet it creates truly sustainable, long-lasting change, which may have global, global implications. So um, I... Very fortunate that my own mother is the sort of person who used to do countless acts of kindness. Hmm. And there's going to be no monument to her. People are going to forget about, about her. But she's changed so many lives by simple acts of kindness as they couldn't be numbered. If I would ask you now, at this moment, you know, um, come up with a simple act of kindness for some somebody or something. What would that be? Oh, um, if someone comes with to you with a problem, rather than listening to them as if you've got the answer that you are ready to tell them, listen to them with a truly open mind so that you can help them find their own solution and um, recognize that from inside their world, they see things more clearly than you see from the, from the outside. 
And that's very fresh in my mind because I had the really good opportunity of speaking with a friend today who wanted to to bring something to my attention. And I really knew how I felt about it. And I knew he wasn't going to like what I had to say about it. And my dear understanding wife, Teresa, really helped me, first of all, wait two days, <laughs> stop feeling that I knew the answer. <laughs> and um, I was able to really drop that. And as a result, the conversation really helped him. And it wouldn't if I'd just gone in thinking I knew how to fix the problem. Tim, I mean, these conversations always go fast. Um, my kind of last question to you is, do you have any message or any last question, uh, suggestion, anything you would like to, to share with the listeners or, or with me or anything that I should have asked? to you and that it didn't yeah uh yes i would say it's important to embrace change if you want to grow if you want to transform both personally and socially to create to create change and embracing change involves embracing discomfort if you think about um a caterpillar turning into a butterfly. That process involves enclosing itself in a cocoon and then having to fight its way out of a cocoon and then being incredibly vulnerable as its wings are drying. So struggle, discomfort, feeling very vulnerable. These things are part of getting to the transformation you want and you seek in your own life's unfolding. So to be accepting of change means to embrace discomfort. And that would be my hope for all of your listeners is they develop those skills. I, I would really like to thank you, Tim, for your time. Um, yeah. And, and, and um, sharing your wisdom, your experience, your stories uh, with me today and with the listeners, I would really encourage the listeners to check out, you know, the, the website of your publishing company. I am I'm looking here at something that I copy pasted from your website, and that is a couple of things that struck my mind, and and uh, that you know you would like, or you, yeah, you're striving to be a dynamic, forward-looking, independent publisher that welcomes unsolicited manuscripts. So I think there are a lot of authors out there that are struggling and that are looking for, you know, these type of opportunities. And then you're saying, we are looking for books that will inspire, inform, and illuminate the lives of readers. Um, and um, the sentence is longer, but I, I made this bold because that's what I hope this podcast is, is also kind of doing and contributing to. Um, yeah, thank you so much. And, and so, yeah, listeners really check out the books uh, that Tim has written himself, as well as the books that he has published and to follow him. Uh, it's all great stuff. Tim, thank you so much and uh, good luck with everything you do. Thank you, Maurice. Gosh, it's been a pleasure to be your guest. And I'm so glad you've created this platform for all of your listeners to really think deeply as they walk, talk, and listen to your life. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much.
This episode was made possible by the support of an organization called CWS. You want to be part of a movement? Well, sign up to become a sustaining partner. As a sustaining partner, you can make a difference in the world automatically every month. Sustaining partners commit to a hopeful future by making compassion a part of their monthly budget. It could mean new systems to manage precious resources like water or diversified ways of earning a living that make people more resilient. For as little as $10 a month, you can transform lives. You want to check it out? Well, go to cbsglobal.org slash sustain. Thank you for listening to Walk, Talk, Listen. Please check us out on 100mile.org or follow us on Facebook or Instagram.